Hi. All right. We are going to be finishing up the Gospel of John today. Thus far this week, we have walked through what is truth. What is the truth about God? What's the truth about my sin? What's the truth about the Bible? What's the truth about Jesus' life and ministry? And what is the truth of the gospel? And for many of us last night, we heard or maybe even understood for the first time, what is the gospel? It's the story of how my debt was paid in the blood shed on the cross by Jesus Christ and how he gave me his righteousness and took my shame on himself. <clears throat> so now we ask a simple question. Uh, now what? Now what do we do? Here's a, here's a fact that I want to give you, and it's, it's not to scare you, but it, but it is to give you a sense of the importance of the conversation we're going to have and the importance of your local church. The importance of staying plugged in and the importance of these things is this. The, the Bible says time and time again that the enemy of your soul, the enemy of your soul is Satan. And Satan would love nothing more than for you to have a Katy Perry experience here at camp, Right? A firework experience. Baby, you're a firework. And that's it. Like your life is, you know what I mean? Like G, G, the Satan would love for your spiritual experience to look like this. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Done. And it's gone. And you're going to think back for the rest of your life on this week. And you're going to go, what a fun time I had that one time. Bummer it didn't adjust anything. Bummer it didn't change anything. Bummer it didn't alter anything. If we think that the spiritual high that we experienced this week is going to carry on for the rest of our lives, let me just be the one to ruin it for you. That's not how this whole thing works. There is a point by which the sinner, there's a point by which the person who is condemned, there's a point by which the person who is going to drink their own cup of wrath is able to pass that cup across the table or to ask deeper questions about what it means to follow Jesus. But then the Bible has a lot to say about what it means to finish the race in Christ. To finish the race in Christ. There's a, there's, a, there's a now and not yet aspect to your life right now where you are not at heaven yet. You're not at your divine appointment with God yet. You've got years, some of you. Some of you, it'll be a lot shorter than that. Nothing's promised, nothing's guaranteed. We don't know that God's not gonna come back tomorrow and bring us all to be with him. We don't know these things. But when you ask the Bible, now what? When you ask Jesus, now what? The answer is never, wait, you signed up for Jesus? Great. It's easy sledding from here. Oh, you're a Christian now? Get ready for your life to get a whole lot simpler. Oh, you're a Christian? Say bye-bye to pain, friend, and hello to paradise. The rest of your life is going to be like easy street. False, backwards, nonsense. The promises that the Bible makes to us are, there's a lot of them. And, and they almost all revolve around this one idea. In this world, you will have trouble. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour. These are the promises that scripture gives us. So, here's a statistic. If you think of, try, don't, you don't need to say anything. You don't even need to point at anyone. But I want you to group yourself mentally with three other people. So you and three other people. You can choose any three other people. You don't need to say it out loud. You don't, you're not going to do anything with these people. Just mentally. You have yourself and then think, oh, that person, that person, that person. Okay? Four of you in groups of four. Don't move. Don't change. Don't say anything out loud. Just mentally think about it. You've got your four? Good. The statistics show 
that three of the four of you will walk away from Jesus when you enter college. That means in that grouping, one of you remains. One remains. Not 50% of people. Not 75% of people remain. Not 80% of people remain. The statistic shows that a guy named Greg Kinnaman who wrote a book called You Lost Me. <clears throat> and in it, he does this research. Three out of four young adults who make a profession of faith will stop attending church or will walk away from their faith when they get to college. Three out of four. And here's the craziest part about it. If you were to ask those four people to raise your hand if you think, don't actually do this, but if you got together with those other three people and I asked you, raise your hand if you're gonna be part of the three force that walks away, almost none of us would raise our hand. We all like to think that, right? This is what we do. If it's me and three other people and you tell me three of us are leaving, I'm like, y'all are leaving. The problem with that is guess what they think about you? The person sitting next to you goes, y'all are leaving. And the person sitting in the third position goes, you and you two are leaving, because I'm not. And the fourth person goes, all y'all three are leaving, not me. But you can't all be right. And so we have to ask a bigger question. What separates that then? If none of us think it's going to be us, if we think that we're perfectly immune to it, you know, the statistics show pretty clearly what's going to happen, what's the difference? What, is, what, is, what do we do to protect that? What do we do to persevere in that? When Satan prowls like a roaring lion, this, this world is seeking to destroy you and pull you away from Jesus. How do you stand firm? Here's what the scripture says. It's maybe the summative verse of all of the book of John. I'm gonna read it for you, then I'm gonna give you two principles, then we're gonna get out of here. Here's what it says. John chapter 20. Jesus dies. He's buried in a rich man's tomb. The guards seal it off. A Roman guard is placed in front of the tomb so no fishy business happens, no funny business happens. And yet on the third day, what, what feels like an earthquake comes, the soldiers who are trained battlemen, they're strong and fierce. They fall over like dead men because the power of God has come back from the dead. The tomb is empty. The women go to find it. They declare that it is gone, that he is gone. We see doubting Thomas occur. Doubting Thomas, a man named Thomas, he hears that Jesus is resurrected and he doesn't believe it. He says, I'll believe it when I put my hands in his, in his hand, when I put my finger in his hand and I put my finger in his side where they pierce him with a spear. Then I will believe. Jesus hears his doubts and he doesn't say, well, then I'm not gonna show you my hands or my side. Well, if you doubt, then I'm gonna hide myself from you. The character of Jesus, it says he walks in the room and he says, Thomas, come here. Put your hands right here. Put your hands in my side. Thomas believes. Then, John chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs, okay? The book of John keeps using this phrase, many signs. The same way we saw it in the skit, the book of John presents a court case. Signs, evidences, witnesses, uh, objectives, here's exhibit A, here's exhibit B, all of it is trying to convince us as the reader that Jesus is God, okay? So here's kind of his, this would be like his closing remarks. John believes the court case is finished. 
He's called forward a number of witnesses. His opening statement, in the beginning there was a word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Through him all things were made. This light shined in the darkness, but the darkness didn't understand it, so it killed it. But this light was the life of mankind. A man named John the Baptist calls, he's like a dog howling in the woods. Howling in the woods is John the Baptist. And then he keeps calling forward witnesses like this woman caught in adultery, like this Samaritan woman, like this Roman official's son, like a man named Thomas, like a man named Peter. And as he calls them all forward, he finishes presenting his case. And then here's what he writes to you and to me. In his love, John writes, or buddy in our skit, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these things that I wrote down, they're written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John's purpose is twofold. I want you to surrender your life over to Jesus, to believe that his death on the cross meant something because it was God dying on the cross, and God died on the cross for your sins but it's twofold. I wrote all these things that you might believe, but then also that through believing, you may have life in his name. So we ask the question, what does it mean to have life in Jesus' name? It, it, it's gotta mean something different than, well, now I breathe deeper than I used to. I feel more alive. That's not what the Bible says. And it certainly doesn't mean your life's gonna be easier. So what does the Bible mean when it says you're gonna have life in Jesus? It means from here on out, you are no longer king and he is king. Now, what do we do? How do we not become one of the three of the four of the people who are gonna walk away from Jesus? I'm gonna give you two things that I believe when the Bible says, this is what it means to have life in my name. These are the regular practices of Christians who want to finish the race in Christ. If you don't care about finishing the race in Christ, feel free to ignore everything I'm gonna say from here on out. However, if you take seriously your divine appointment someday, you understand the wrath of God and the perfect justice of God, and you think that it might be okay because at least you had one spiritual experience in your life, no friend. You know what, you know what the, the, the Apostle Paul, he, he is, the Time Magazine a few years back said he's the second most influential man who's ever lived. And Paul writes in the scriptures, and you know what, you know what Paul writes about? Paul writes about what it takes to walk with Jesus. Now, let me get one thing perfectly clear. What did we have to do to earn God's love, favor, and salvation for us? Nothing. nothing. These are two totally different conversations. On this side is the idea, what, what kind of a gift was, was God's grace for us? It was a free gift. The wages we earned was hell, but the gift he gave was free. This is not talking about salvation. This is not, here's the things you must do for God to love you. Here's the things you must do to be saved. Here's the things you must do. No, this is what it means to remain. Jesus, because of his grace, saved us freely. But now we see over and over again in scriptures, personal and human responsibility to remain. And that is not something that's easy. That is not something that's simple. Here's what Paul writes about it. Paul says, I have considered, I have considered the rubbish of the world in comparison to the surpassing worth that is found in Christ Jesus. Therefore, daily, I beat my body and I make it my slave that I might finish my life in Christ. 
Paul says, following Jesus is like being an, a, an elite athlete who wakes up every day and knows his ultimate prize. Being a follower of Jesus is like a farmer who gets up before dawn so that he can yield his crops. He's disciplined. He understands what is necessary. He completely gets that it is God's rain and God's sun that comes and grows the plants. But you better believe that farmer is out there planting and sowing and reaping and paying attention and studying and learning. He says it's like a soldier. Walking with Jesus is like being an athlete. It's like being a farmer. It's like being a soldier prepared for battle at all times, armed and equipped. And when, when the scriptures say we should be armed and equipped, it doesn't mean that, that we need to have some kind of physical ability. It means that when we cut, when we get cut, we bleed scripture. How does Jesus attack and defend against Satan when Satan tempts him? Do you know how? He literally, it's the God of the universe, and you know what he does? He quotes scripture at Satan. So here's what Paul's telling us. Paul's saying, don't make a mistake, friend. Following Jesus is like being an elite athlete. It's like being, it's like being a farmer. It's, it's, it's like being a soldier prepared for battle. You gotta beat your body and make it your slave. Do you wanna know why? Because our hearts are wild and rebellious. Jeremiah 17, verse nine. For the human heart is desperately wicked and beyond taming. It needs help. Our hearts are fickle. They're feeble. They turn to whatever they want, whenever they want. We have to bring, as 1 Corinthians says, all thoughts captive unto Christ. How do we do that? We practice spiritual disciplines. We practice spiritual disciplines. Let me give you two as we walk out of here that I think for your age in particular, if you care about being the one out of four, if you care about this being more than a Katy Perry camp, if you care about your divine appointment and sticking this through to the end and not just having this one-off, one-week experience, if you care, you will implement in your life the disciplines required to finish the race in Christ. The Bible is not mute on this subject. The Bible does not consider salvation in Christ to be a one-time thing and that's it. It's not you stand, you say a prayer, you get out of your chair and you're good to go for the rest of your life. That can absolutely be the beginning of your conversion and the beginning of your big word, sanctification. It means becoming more like Jesus, but it's not the end. If you think that you stand up in a chair and say, God, you are everything, and then go back home and live like you did before, then there was no real transformation of heart. The Holy Spirit isn't actually active in your life, and you should be terrified. That's called false conversion. Because when the Holy Spirit lives in you, things change. And the Holy Spirit calls us then, as part of that, as the avatar of Jesus, to change and alter things. Here's the two things I'm going to give to you. Number one is this. The Christian who wants to finish their life in Christ will practice real repentance. Write that down. Practice real repentance. Martin Luther, the great Protestant Reformationist, in his, he pinned a 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg way long time ago, during the 1500s. And he basically went to the Catholic church and he said, I've got a lot of issues with the way that the Bible's being taught. I got some things we need to think about. Here's 95 discussions we should have. You want to know what his first one was? When the Christian repents, he must repent daily with all of his self. That was his first point of his 95 theses. 
that started the Protestant Reformation, which is why you and I are sitting here today instead of us all being part of a Catholic system. His first point was, God calls man to repent on the daily. What does the word repent mean? The Bible, it's a very important word in the Bible. The first word of Jesus' public ministry, he says, repent. John the Baptist, pretty important guy. First word of his public ministry, repent. After receiving the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Peter goes out. And the first word of his public ministry, repent. What does this word mean? We better have a good grasp on it because the Bible seems to make it a pretty important thing. The word repent comes from the Greek word metanoia, and it means you need to change the way you think. It means you change your mind. The way that we would understand it in, in, in like a, a term of a soldier or in military terms, it's to do a complete about face. So if your life is going this direction, you turn an about face and you go back this direction. The Bible says, if you want to finish this race in Christ, practice true repentance. Why am I saying the word true repentance? I'm saying the word true repentance because for so many of us, when it comes to sin and shame in our life, instead of repenting of our sins, we have created a new category where when we mess up, all we do is feel bad for it without practicing true repentance. That's not repentance. Listen to me, this is important. If you've got a group of friends and every time you hang out with them, you're gossiping about people, you're tearing people down and you're bullying them, and you know that every Thursday you guys get back together and you tease and you pick on the other girls in your class because you're one of the plastics of your crew and you're a jerk and you're insecure and you're with the other girls that are jerks and insecure and so you keep bullying people and you just become aware of that because the Holy Spirit's knocking in your heart and saying, you're a jerk. And you're going, I might be a jerk. And you know every Thursday you get together and you gossip and you tear people down. Repentance does not mean after your first Thursday back home, when they do the same thing they always do, that you go, God, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Please be with me next week when I travel over to my friend's house on Thursday and do it again, right? That's not repentance. That's, that might be guilt. That could even be shame or sorrow. But scripture loves us too much to let us stay there because it knows that the human heart is fickle and feeble-minded, that we love sin and we turn back to it. So the Bible gives us this beautiful word of grace which says, change something. True repentance means that you hate your sin enough to change something that will bring you back to where you were before. But listen, I wanna give you a caution from Jesus before I continue forward because what I'm about to say is going to sound so ridiculous to so many of you because the Bible says that the gospel of Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing. So I'm guaranteeing you what I'm about to say is going to sit on some of you like an awkward elephant, like what the heck is this guy talking about? But before I say it, let me give you a word of caution from Jesus as a preface. Jesus in the book of Luke chapter 14, he says, before any of you wants to follow me, I want you to consider something. Think about a man who builds a house. What kind of an idiot would ever start building a house without considering whether or not he has all the money to finish the house? Let's say you build a beautiful foundation, but you don't have enough money to put up walls and doors and ceilings and everything else like that. You know what's gonna happen when people walk by you? They're gonna go, this guy's not very smart. He didn't have enough money. He said, following me, it's not just like that. Following me is like, a, is like an army commander who looks at the battle that he's gonna fight and realizes that the battle that he's gonna fight is gonna cost him 10,000 men. 
What's the problem with that? The problem with that is he's got another army to fight tomorrow that has another 10,000 men. So if he loses 10,000 men, he might have won the battle, but tomorrow he's going to lose the war. What good is it for this man to go into the first battle? It's pointless. You're going to get taken over anyway. Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me on a daily basis. The word we use for this in the, in the church is the cost of discipleship. The cost of following Jesus is high. The price tag on your salvation was Jesus' perfect life, and we are able to obtain that through Jesus' free gift. The cost of discipleship, of following Jesus and becoming more like him and finish, finishing this race in him, has a high price tag on it. You're not earning your way to heaven. You're not earning your way to salvation. You're just trying to not backslide into the old dead self you used to be. You are trying to re, I love the way that the, the song puts it, teach my song to rise to you when temptation comes my way. Jesus, in John 17, he prays and he says, my deepest prayer for my friends and for my loved ones and for my children is that they would hate the world. Do not love it. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. It's temporary. It's fictional. It's not the real thing. Practice true repentance. This is a high price tag. Don't consider following Jesus unless you've considered what it's going to cost you. And for some of us, the things that cause us to sin in our life, the price tag on those things is too high a price to pay, and we're going to go home and we're going to stop following Jesus. For some of us in this room, we have such an addiction to pornography or on websites on the internet that we keep clicking on over and over again. But guess what? You have anonymous, unfettered access to the internet. You've got the internet in your pocket. You're addicted to it, and you keep going back and crossing these boundaries and spitting in the face of God with our sin and our shame every day. Boom, 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 over and over and over again, right? And so for some of us, repentance doesn't mean I look at pornography, I create that shame cycle, I feel really bad about it, and then tomorrow I'm gonna get my phone back out at night in my pocket anonymously, hidden browser mode, look at it again. That's not repentance. You know what repentance means for some of us? It means turning in your phone and getting a dumb phone rather than a smartphone. And here's what Jesus says about that. Jesus says, you're ready to mock me, aren't you? Jesus talks about this in the New Testament. He goes, you think that's dumb, don't you? You think it's so dumb? What kind of a, what kind of a junior hire in 2022 has a flip phone? What kind of a, what kind of a ridiculous statement is that? That if, if your phone causes you to sin, throw it away. I got news for you, what Jesus said. He said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Why is Jesus saying these things? This is what he says next. He goes, you know what would be better? It'd be better if you were just a torso with no eyes, rolling to the gates of heaven, saved and sanctified, entering to the rest and receiving a new body for all of eternity. And you know what? Because your hands and feet and eyes caused you to sin, you got rid of them, but now you are holy and perfect and blameless with a new body in Christ for all of eternity. So for this 60, 70 period of time, year period of time, you don't have arms. So what? You're gonna live for 100 trillion years in heaven. Do you know how pithy 60 years looks in terms of 50 trillion years after this? The book of James says, your life is like a sneeze. Your entire life is like a, when you spritz some Febreze, that's your whole life, right? Could you imagine trying to invest in that? You like push the little spray bottle. 
<laughs> it's gone. Guys, this is how we look to God. We go, <laughs> so important. Okay. <laughs> Birth, death, prom, death. Right? It's like that's our whole life. That's your whole life right there. But so many of us will go, I don't know, man. Spending 60 years without a smartphone just because I'm addicted to pornography seems kind of ridiculous. And Jesus says, it would be ridiculous for you to show up with a brand new iPhone to the gates of heaven, but because of its hold and its addiction on you and how you've turned away from Jesus and you've sought after the world instead of his kingdom, that you'll spend forever separated from him. That person now looks really silly. Practice true repentance. That means some of you in your awful relationships with boys and girls back home, gotta get out of them. I'm sure it's true love, for sure. Like you guys are probably gonna get married, right? But not, and for a lot of us, that's what's pulling us back. Every time we hang out with them, every time we associate with them, we know we fall back into old habits. The Bible uses a word of grace and mercy to you. Because we want to finish the race in Christ, repent. Practice true repentance. That means for some of you in here, even with your counselors, your youth pastors, if you're a girl and you have a trusted female leader in your group, if you're a guy, you have a trusted male leader, maybe you gotta go make a game plan with them, man. Strategize. Hey, I'm letting you know, when I go back home, I'm gonna go back to the same thing. I'm addicted to it. It's got control of me. Do you know the part of your brain that lights up under a brain scan when you uh, take a hit of cocaine is the same part of your brain that lights up when you look at pornography? Do you know what that means? It means pornography can create for a lot of us a physical chemical addiction in our brain. It rewires the very synapses. It makes what we desire to be metaphysical rather than physical. It's ruining marriages, bro. I'm telling you, I get to deal with marriages right now that are divorcing because the two people, men and women, 30% of all internet porn users are female, by the way, they're exiting their marriages because they don't find people in person attractive anymore because they're so addicted to digital images. How, how is this not a love letter to you from God going, stop? Practice true repentance. And secondly and lastly, to, to finish out our week, if you want to finish this race in Christ, when Jesus left planet Earth, he made a really massive claim. He stood on top of a rock in Caesarea Philippi, and here's what he said. He looks at Peter, and he says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are Mashiach. You are Messiah. You are the coming king. You are Theochristus. You are the one. You're the pup we've been waiting for. You are one with the master. Through you, and only through you, John 14, 6, you are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through you. Jesus' response is, that is correct. And then he says a statement, and he says, and on the truth of the statement that you just said, I'm building a church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lastly, take divorce off the table with your local church. If you want to experience a radical life change in your Christian walk, if you say the ridiculous phrase over and over again, I just don't feel close to God, for a lot of us, it's because we have the complete wrong idea of what church is supposed to be. Take divorce off the table with your local church. Here's the problem with our modern minds. Let me help you out. When you go on the street, right? Let's say you're hungry, right? Tummy's growling. You're going to get something to eat. And all these signs start screaming at you, right? Arby's is like, come here. We've got meat. Yeah, like a lot of weird meat, you know? In and out's like, hey, 
It's the California thing to do, right? Carl's Jr. is like, hey, we're still here. Did you forget? We still have a lot of restaurants, man. We're big in the Midwest. We're big in the Midwest. McDonald's, I'm your cheap option, man. You don't have a lot of money. Just saying. 20-piece chicken nugget for two bucks. That's not bad, right? Doc, Taco Bell, if you want to feel this for a week, come in our doors. <laughs> One week, right? If you're a junior high student and you're driving in a car on the main street of your city and you have $20 in your pocket, the whole world of the food industry is screaming out for you to come in. You are king because you're the consumer. And our world is a consumeristic world. So when you drive down the street, these people are there and they're, they're using gimmicks to get you in the doors. We'll give you a coupon. Two for 222. Uh, it's raining outside. Kids can get a hot chocolate in and out on rainy days. Here, we just make these things. We do it because we want desperately for you to come and spend your money at our place. Here's the problem. That has fundamentally changed something in the modern American junior high brain. You want to know why? Because guess how we now see church? We see church the same way we see fast food joints, the same way we see grocery stores, that we are king and we walk in and you are lucky to have us, man. And, and listen, this is, like, this is really important. A lot of you guys have sinned so desperately in the way that you've treated your youth pastors and your youth leaders and you need to apologize and you need to repent of that. You had some weird, mixed up, screwed up view that it's your youth pastor's job to entertain you, to feed you spiritually, to do all these things for you. And let me tell you what, it's fundamentally not their job. The role of the youth pastor is a brand new role in human history. It used to be the dad's job. The dad's job was to bring up their kids in discipline and to teach them the ways of the Lord. When fathers began to usurp that responsibility and cease to do it, the men and women, I'm trying to get emotional, the men and women who sit around you right now are filling in a gap of where men used to be. And not only that, they're now dealing with the modern junior high American consumeristic mind who walks in the doors and thinks that they have to entertain you. Do you know what kind of weight that puts on a man who believes their calling is to teach the Bible and preach Christ crucified? That for you, part of the saved, the, 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 the sheep, you are part of the flock, you are saved, you're a follower of Jesus, that you walk in every week like Anton Ego from Ratatouille like this? Mm, I didn't like that game. I'm gonna tell my mother she's on the board. Is it a little too nippy in here for you too? I think so too. <laughs> I'm gonna grill him for that afterwards. What songs are we playing this week? Oh, the keyboardist, terrible. What songs was that? I haven't heard that one, I don't want it. Oceans or bust, that's what I say. Just play it on repeat, that's all we need. And we, and we walk in and we look at our youth pastors and we say, what do you got for me this week? What are you gonna do for me this week? Here's my favorite one as a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor for 11 years. They come up to me and they go, man, Chris, I'm really glad that I found your youth group because the youth group I was at before just wasn't feeding me spiritually. And they think that's like really high and mighty to say. But guess what? That's not your youth pastor's job to feed you spiritually. You can read a book. The NIV version of the Bible is written at a fourth grade level. The notion that it's your youth pastor's job to teach you the Bible 
is fundamentally misconstrued. They exist to create an atmosphere by which you can practice the very things of Christ to bring others into relationship with Jesus. Friend, the church does not exist to entertain you or to tickle your fancy or to make you feel a certain way. Or when you come in the doors, you go, I didn't feel welcome. It's not their job to do that. It is your job. If your youth group isn't welcoming, friend, I've got a newsflash for you. It is your responsibility to be part of the group that fixes it if you are in Christ. The moment you become saved, you are in the body of Christ. You are part of the church. You don't go to church. You are the church. And it took me so many years for me to understand this, and it fundamentally changed my heart towards God because I stopped seeing his church as something that was supposed to give, but instead it was a place that I went to serve. So I mean, some of us in here, we need to find our youth pastor after this. We need to apologize for being a jerk for making his or her life really hard, for treating them like it's their responsibility. From here on out, when you show up at youth group, you should link arms with your youth pastor. You go, bro, what are we doing tonight? Because I'm in. If you say we're stapling our faces to the carpet and you think it's gonna bring more people to Christ, then dang it, where the heck is the stapler? I'm in. Probably like don't, like don't do that. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying? Be part of the mission of God to save people around you that are going to hell. Do you get that? Most of the people you encounter in your schools are going to hell. Do you care? If you do, then you should see every youth group night as a perfect opportunity that Jesus might come and reap and make a harvest in your youth group that even one soul would change and go from being destined for hell to being destined for heaven. It's not my job anymore. If you're saved, it's your job. You are the mission field. You are responsible. And when you get to heaven someday and God says, what did you do with the years that I gave you? You don't get to call on your youth pastor and have him be a part of it. I didn't do much, but listen, Brennan, he's been real helpful. He did, his, he did my job for me. You should see Carl over here. You should see Kyle. Jennifer, she was rocking it, right? The conversation will be to you. The idea of stewardship will be to us individually, what did you do to advance the gospel? If you want to finish this race in Christ, change the way you see the church that Jesus died for. And secondly, practice true repentance in your hearts and your lives. Create strategy and game plan to eradicate the sin from your life. As Romans 13 says, make much provision for the spirit and make no provision for the flesh. In other words, feed the gospel in your heart and starve and suffocate the sin. Most of us won't do anything with what I just said. Most of you just heard the words I said and have zero intent to change anything in your life. That's where the 75% number comes from. But I'm pleading with you in my deep, unyielding love for you and a call from the gospel that if Paul says, I beat my body and make it my slave, we can't possibly think that we can go home and put a cross in our Instagram bio and everything's gonna change. I beat my body and I make it my slave. Well, now I have a little symbol in my Instagram bio. Is that gonna be sufficient? No. It's a whole heart change. It's a whole life change. I told you at the beginning of the week, I'm not gonna treat you like babies. And I'm finishing the week with the same timber. I want to be with you in heaven forever.
we will never all be in this chapel again together, ever, ever. My deep hope is that there'll be a reunion of Meadow Lake, Meadow Ranch, Hume Lake Meadow Ranch 2022 summer camp, week seven, where we all look at each other and, and we say, something changed for me that week, that this chapel is mostly full of people. I hope that it's all full of people. But the difference between whether or not it's full and it's not will depend on do we practice true repentance? Do we stay with Jesus' community in the church? Do we get discipled? Do we get brought up? Do we listen to sound correction or do we not? My prayer is that in your strength you would do just that. Let's pray. Lord, when it comes to the cost of discipleship, no matter what our hearts think, you never negotiate the cost. When we say that's too hard, you don't say, well, let me make it lower for you. When we say that's too much, you never say, well, never mind, not that big of a deal. You hold firmly, you hold strongly to the high cost of discipleship. For what man who goads the bills, goads the bills a house doesn't first consider the cost by which it's gonna take? Who, with an army, doesn't first consider the losses that he will take? Lord, would you just help us in our hearts right now consider the idea is this going to be something that I actually do? Is this something that I want to sacrifice for? Is, is finishing this race with you actually important? And if it is, Holy Spirit, show me in my heart those arenas, those areas, those places where I need real change. Not just to feel a certain way about what I used to be, but to change. Where I need to beat my body and make it my slave that I may be found in you. The cost of discipleship is higher but the joy of your presence forevermore is infinitely greater. May we, with eyes wide open, see the end result of our divine appointment with you and through the power of the Holy Spirit, pursue that with all that we have, no matter the cost. To name we pray, amen.